Silas Bards. Dearly Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for reminding us of your grace, that it is quite evident in the fellowship that we receive gathering together on a morning like this as family. Thank you for a unity that can only be supernaturally empowered, Father. Thank you for bestowing that on each one of us as individuals, but also as a church. Thank you for this church, Father. Thank you for this, this place of worship, this chapel, this magnificent beacon of hope for all of us, for our community even. Thank you for allowing us to send these messages to the four corners of the globe, Father, as part of the Great Commission to continue to make disciples even. We do pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this morning that earnestly desire to be here, but again, for a variety of reasons, cannot be. Our prayers go out to them. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit, Father, and we're praying for their return. We pray also for those in this world that are lost without hope, that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your Son's work on the cross, our Lord and Savior, to make a morning like this a time to rejoice, to give us the ability to even do so. We're so very grateful, Father. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 44 of Proverbs 17 Wisdom, as is always the case, uh, we'll do a little review of this past week's messages, which were titled, Making Disciples. And thanks, uh, Evangelist Grande, for delivering those up. Um, again, let's do a quick review. Uh, before we rejoin our primary course of study, of course, so much of what the Spirit had to say during that two-part mini-series pivoted on this passage up here on the board, Matthew 28, 18-20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. A couple of key things going on that were brought out this past week. Obviously, the gospel is there, spread the gospel, the good news, but also discipling includes teaching, and we'll get to a little bit more on that this morning, that it doesn't just end at salvation per se. So as most of you know, this is colloquially known as the Great Commission. Uh, and just as a point of doctrine, uh, he's got me teaching, as you'll see in a moment, um, sort of a how-to, uh, just a friendly reminder 
of um, when we read our Bibles, or even when we hear a phrase, a common phrase in Christianity, the Great Commission, um, the tag name never shows up in Holy Scripture. That's not something that shows up in Holy Scripture, the Great Commission. That's just the sort of a widely accepted tagline for this particular passage. Uh, so just as a point of doctrine, just remember that. You might say, well, that seems arbitrary. I mean, it is, but it isn't. And it'll make a little bit more sense maybe why I bring it up at this point in time. Nonetheless, here's the key principle up here on the board, making disciples, and we got uh, a whole host of this uh, this past week. We are to, quote, go out. So that was a lot of the message this past week with these um, this mini-series, making disciples. We're to go out, which means to reach out, not waiting for others to come to us. That may happen, and we're certainly not going to cast them away, but the encouragement from the Spirit has been to go out, to be proactive even. But that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, depending on what your situation is. I mean, if you're bedridden, you can't really go out. You might reach out with technology. That might be your form of going out. But you can't, not everybody evangelizes the same way. So the Spirit pointed out something interesting um, for all of us to chew on. Go to Luke 24, 45. Luke 24, 45. We'll just, again, we're just in sort of review mode from this past week. He typically has me do this when I come back from a vacation. Always good content in my absence. Always perfectly timed, as we know. But he wants to give us that connective tissue back to our primary course of study. And he also wants your shepherd. He wants you to hear from your shepherd on this topic. So Luke 24, 45. This should be familiar from this past week. Then he opened their minds. I love that. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So much of the gospel right there in front of us. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. Um, any questions about the gospel uh, containing repentance seems to be put aside quite readily right there. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, so the four corners, beginning from Jerusalem. So we have a context here, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so, you know, the Lord was giving his disciples um, room to spread the good news right there in, you know, as Scott would use, their backyards. And so it's interesting that Jesus sent his disciples out into their, quote, backyards, uh, as we noted this past week. Now, here's a side note, though, that I've got to make very clear. I think the day before I left on vacation, I uh, made note of this as well, and I think this is very important. Up here on the board, narrative versus doctrine. Narrative versus doctrine. 
never make the mistake of taking a narrative part of Holy Scripture and formulating doctrines that simply aren't present. Never take a story, a narrative, in Holy Scripture and say, well, that's the way it was done in that story, therefore, it's doctrine, and that's the way it should always be done. Never make that mistake, okay? And there's a lot of, there's more, arguably, much, much more narrative in the Holy Bible than there is clearly stated doctrine, okay? So never make the mistake of taking a narrative part of Holy Scripture and formulating doctrines that simply aren't present. And here we have a perfect example in Luke 24. Did Jesus send his disciples out into their own backyards? Yeah, indeed he did. What kind of doctrine can we glean from this? Jesus, as a narrative, sent his disciples out to their, let's use this past week's language, their backyards. What kind of doctrine, though, can we glean from this? Well, we know that we can be sent to our own backyards to evangelize others. Obviously, it's a possibility because Jesus did it. Okay, we can agree to that. Can we make the statement that all evangelizing must begin in our own backyards? Not based on this passage. Why? It's a narrative. Can we make the statement that all evangelizing must begin in our own backyards? Not on this scripture. Why not? Because it's a narrative portion of Holy Scripture. It's telling a story about how Jesus sent his disciples out to preach the gospel. But a story isn't doctrine. Do you understand? I can tell you a story right now of how I went out and preached the gospel in my backyard. Are you to assume that just because I told you a story and I'm a pastor or whatever, um, that's precisely how you should do it every time? That it becomes doctrine in your soul? No. Because a story isn't doctrine. Doctrine might be behind it, might have motivated the activities of the characters in the story, but it's not clearly stated doctrine. Does that make sense? And most of the Bible is written as a narrative. So, just for the sake of context, or contrast even, Here's an example of clearly stated doctrine up here on the board. John 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's what we call clearly stated biblical doctrine. Do you see the difference? I hope. I hope you see the difference. Here's another example of a narrative portion of Scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 1, 14. 
And I love that he's doing this with this congregation because it's very, very important that you never take narrative and force doctrine into it or out of it. Try to squeeze doctrine out of it. Okay? Don't ever do that. That's how cults are uh, born. That's how uh, confusion is born. Contention in the churches happens. But here's another narrative portion of Scripture, and hopefully you can see the difference. 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so obviously this is Paul speaking, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Right? Remember, he was... When, these people were awful. I'm from Apollos. I'm from Paul. I'm from so-and-so, right? They were like Americans. They all had their idols. And, and they wanted... No, really, they wanted to cling to... And he's like, listen, I'm glad I didn't baptize you because then you'd be doing it to me. I would become your idol because I, oh, I was baptized by Paul. So there's a huge context here. And if you don't understand the context, if you don't stick to the context, well, what else do people do? Well, they say, oh, well, Paul didn't do it, so therefore it must be doctrine. Look at 16. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me, Paul's speaking here in context, right? Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, here's the question. Does the fact that Paul didn't baptize anyone except a you know, couple few guys mean that water baptism is no longer something we ought to do? So one person who was charged to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, really big job, just saying, in context was basically saying, I don't want your idolatry. I don't want to be your idol. And by the way, I'm not going to spend my time baptizing people because i got bigger fish to fry. Not that I won't, because I have. But in context, that's what we see. So again, does the fact that Paul didn't baptize anyone except a few Small number mean that water baptism is no longer something we ought to do? In other words, in the context of the story, was Paul trying to establish holy doctrine? No. No. There's holy doctrine in there on other topics, but not this one. Certainly not on baptism. And yet, some have made a false doctrine out of this passage in support of a no water baptism viewpoint. We don't do water baptism because look at what Paul just said. Yeah, look at what Paul just said. Wake up. It's a story. It's a narrative. He wasn't trying to establish doctrine about water baptism. He was fighting a fight. So again, just as a side note up here on the board, narrative versus doctrine. Never make the mistake of taking a narrative part of a holy scripture and formulating doctrines that simply aren't present. Okay? Why do I bring this up? Why does the Spirit have me bringing it up? Well, Luke 24 talks about Jesus sending his disciples out to Jerusalem first. Okay? 
Based on the Luke 24 narrative alone, we cannot make a doctrine that states all must evangelize in their backyards first. Might it happen? Sure. In that situation where Jesus said, you don't have the Holy Spirit to do this yet, he's not upon you, wait. While you're waiting, do this thing. But based on that narrative alone, we cannot make a doctrine that states all must evangelize in their backyards first. That's what happened in this case, but it's certainly not clearly stated doctrine. It's just a narrative with context. The key principle from the making disciples' messages is that we ought to consider our sphere of influence. That's the message I want you to take away from those messages. Consider your sphere of influence, your relationships even, which obviously may mean that we are sent into our backyards. That's what we see over and over in Holy Scripture. Jesus and his disciples reaching out to those whom they have direct access to. That's what we see. Whatever the context demanded, great commission, doctrine, context demands this or that. Your life has context. Everyone's life here has specific context. It's why I can't tell you, hey, um, I heard uh, you didn't go to the park with Scotty over here. Shame on you. Everyone should go to the park because Scott goes to the park. Hey, um, I heard you haven't been, uh, you know, circling your neighborhood lately with flyers and your Bible and knocking on doors. Shame on you. The disciples went to Jerusalem first. You need to go to your Jerusalem first. As a matter of doctrine. Shame on you. I can turn a narrative into a whip, can't I? That's dangerous grounds, my, my friends. Very dangerous ground. And it causes divisions in the church. And angst that should not be there. So we see this over and over. Jesus and his disciples reaching out to those whom they have direct access to. Are they the only folks that were evangelized back then? I mean, did Jesus only teach folks he knew personally? No. No. Here's a perfect example of this. Go to Mark 6.32. Mark 6.32. Mark 6.32. Mark 6.32 reads, And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns 
and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jump forward to verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Okay? So is it fair to say that Jesus and his disciples hadn't met all 5,000 of these people? Yeah. The point is that in this narrative, it's just another narrative, do you understand? It's another narrative. In this narrative, we see thousands being evangelized, or at least taught, leading them to the gospel who only have a very loose personal relationship with the evangelist. So, we can't make a false doctrine that states we only try to evangelize those we have personal relationships with either. Doesn't mean we can't, but we can't make false doctrines either. Is that a possible avenue? You bet. Love it. Maybe one of the most effective. I don't know. You choose for your life. Certainly seem to work in Holy Scripture, in the narratives we read, but it's not the only way. It's not the only touch point with the gospel, you see. And so we shouldn't be so rigid. We shouldn't hyper-doctrinalize things we read in stories, which would mean to... Uh, annihilate the truth of what the Spirit's trying to say, to pervert it, even. So, and this is just a balance statement. I hope you see it. We can't make a false doctrine that states we only try to evangelize those we have personal relationships with either. What we can say, based on what we just read this morning, let's just take that. What can we say with what, if we're honest with integrity to truth, not looking for things we want to be there? That's a huge mistake most people make when they take narrative and make it doctrine. They want something to be there. They want to make a point about something. So they take a narrative and they make it doctrine. See, this is how Jesus did it. And because Jesus' name was in it, that must be doctrine. No, that's how Jesus did it in the context of that situation. That's how Paul did it in the context of that situation. It doesn't mean it's doctrine. Does everybody understand what the Spirit's saying there? I hope you get it, because as you read your own Bibles, this is very important, because you can fall prey to that error. So, what can we say? Just on what we've read, as boundary conditions to evangelism. Well, we can say two things. We can certainly be encouraged to take advantage of those closest to us for the sake of evangelism. That was much of what Scott taught this past week. And you're encouraged to do so. And we saw narratives that showed that thing happening, even with Jesus. So that's definitely something. 
Secondly, we can likewise be encouraged to evangelize strangers or maybe even in the presence of a large crowd like we just saw where there was 5,000. That might also be a condition, a context for giving the gospel. The point is that based on the Great Commission, we ought to be open to evangelizing any and everyone. So, this past week's messages weren't to pigeonhole your efforts into just those in your backyard, and certainly not to harass you into doing so. You shouldn't have felt harassed. Okay? Rather, they were to encourage you to leverage your relationships, even work on building new ones. That's an encouragement from God the Holy Spirit. You have relationships. Why not leverage them? Why not go into your own backyard and do that thing? Again, they were to encourage you to leverage your relationships, even work on building new ones. Why? Because, as we can see in the Bible narratives, people often use their personal relationships as the launching pad for discussions about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful way to spread the good news. It's a very effective way to spread the good news. But is it the only way? No. And should you feel harassed into doing that? No. Not at all. Here's, here's what I would like you to take away up here on the board as a summary of the last couple of messages, the scope of evangelism. We ought to take advantage of every possible opportunity given to us to spread the gospel to the four corners of the globe. This includes fostering and leveraging personal relationships. But it doesn't end there. We ought to adopt, here's the key, you ready? A whatever-it-takes attitude towards evangelism. That's the message. That is the message. Does that make sense? It's whatever it takes, because you know, today, last week, you were with Uncle Jimmy and the fam at Thanksgiving. Well, you know, I'm getting it. And so, the Spirit was, you know, bumping you, not nudging you, saying, hey, you got a good opportunity here to spread the gospel. Awesome. Next week, you're somewhere else. Maybe it's a large crowd. Maybe, the, I don't know. Maybe you're at work. Who knows? Maybe you're in a different situation where you don't know many people at all, just sort of slightly. And the Spirit gives you a nudge and says, hey, give the gospel. You have a whatever-it-takes attitude towards evangelism. Whatever it takes. Artificial boundaries born of false doctrines will only frustrate the Great Commission. Now, with that in mind, here's a key principle worth reiterating up here on the board, making disciples. Not only did Jesus teach them the word throughout their time together, but he also taught them by one of the greatest ways any of us learns, by example. By example. 
Another great nudge from Holy Scripture. Another great form of encouragement we can receive, even, from narratives. Here's some additional encouragement from Paul's personal example up here on the board. This should be reviewed, by the way. Following Paul's example, Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join, join in imitating me. Do like I do. Take advantage of whatever circumstances you have. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. How about 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, have a whatever-it-takes attitude. Paul said, I just want to know Christ and Him crucified. All that other stuff is rubbish. Jesus said, I came to save those who were lost. Whatever it takes. If I get out of a boat and there's 5,000 people there, well, maybe I'll feed them and give them the gospel. If I send my disciples out, maybe I tell them to go to their backyards until some other event happens. Take advantage of the time you got, right? What is that? Because the days are evil. Doesn't that sound like the Bible? It's whatever it takes attitude. But please, don't make the mistake of making narratives doctrine. Don't say just because Paul did it this way. Well, he only baptized a couple of people, so I guess I only have to baptize a couple in my whole life. People do it. People do it. Don't do that. As I taught a while back on why the apostles are so encouraging, one of the key principles was that they were so-called, so-called uneducated. So-called uneducated. Just as a side note, I remember specifically making the same statement back then too regarding making false doctrines. I remember it. Case in point, just because the apostles were uneducated doesn't mean that uneducated people make for better evangelists. Does that make sense? I remember specifically making that statement during that series. Just because they were uneducated and Jesus used them, does that mean that Jesus only used, quote, uneducated people to spread the gospel? No! It's what he chose to use because it worked in context. It worked for him. But does that mean because you've got a Ph.D. in mathematics from MIT that you can't evangelize somebody? You show me that in Scripture, I'll teach it. Otherwise, shut up. I'm serious. That stuff pisses me off. People making doctrines out of narratives. Go home. Stop being a stumbling block to people, to the Word. Because you want to make a point. Because you want to believe in something. That you came to the Bible with some preconception. Maybe it's vestiges of some old religion. And you want it to be true. And so you look for narratives in the Bible and you say, See? See? There's no such thing as water baptism today. Look at Paul. He, didn't even, he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize you. See? All women are witches. Look at Job's wife. Oh, that didn't go very well. <laughs> Listen, people have done it. Look at Job's wife. She was a crank. What a witch. What? 
She said one thing. You take it completely out of context. You just, what, the whole baby goes out with the bathwater? Job's wife was a witch. Let's just make that a doctrine. I've met people that teach it. That's the doctrine of the cranky woman or the witchy wife or change the first letter, call her something else. Right? Oh, that's the same woman that you definitely do not want to be caught in an attic with. Drip, drip, drip. It's the same woman. Oh, is it really? You know Job's wife that well. From one statement in Holy Scripture, you know her that well. You get what I'm getting at? People do it. Why? Because they want that to be true. Because, hey, listen, if you're a woman and you're saying at least you're better than her, at least I'm better than Job's wife. Look at her. She was a witch. No, you're a judgmental jackass. You're worse. You see what I'm getting at? Right? I'm playing, but you, hopefully you understand what the Spirit's saying. What the Spirit was emphasizing in this two-part series, Making Disciples, was that sometimes personal relationships are the key to evangelism. Sometimes that's very, very true. And you should be encouraged by that. But even beyond that, as it came out in those two messages, discipling doesn't even just end at salvation anyways. Look up here on the board. Making disciples implies a lifelong commitment, not just one that ends where we are convinced someone is saved. That's what we saw with the Great Commission, right? Teach them. You know, like, keep teaching them. Don't just give them the gospel and go, hey, I'll catch you in heaven. Oh, keep teaching them. Obviously, we're going to keep teaching them something as intimate and something as phenomenal as Holy Scripture, a personal relationship's most likely going to develop anyways. Right? But you don't make a doctrine out of it. The doctrine is to teach them. That's the commandment. Whatever it takes. If they don't like you, but so, I, look, there are people listening to my voice right now. They don't really like me that much, but they know I teach the truth. And so they listen. Do you understand? I don't have a close personal relationship with those people. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's perfectly fine. And you know what? By Bible doctrine standards, it's legitimate. What's not legitimate is for me to force and say, hey, listen, if you don't like me, get out of here. <laughs> hey, everybody goes, okay. <laughs> like two people left. <laughs> It's legitimate. You know what I'm saying? We can't make doctrines that aren't there. We only have to live and abide in the truth. Again, making disciples implies a lifelong commitment, not just one that ends when we are convinced someone is saved. This point also appeared on the board, came out on Thursday on making disciples. Discipling also involves teaching, teaching others the ways of Christ. Great. Now, you might struggle and say, well, I'm not a teacher, so I don't know where to begin. Not everyone's a teacher. Not everybody has, you know, the different levels of teaching ability. Well, the Spirit gave you some scripture to chew on up here on the board, key passages and making disciples. Okay, is this doctrine? 
Is it doctrine? Because in the context of last week's messages, these things happen to come out? No. Is this absolutely always where you start? No. It's just a helper. Hey, listen, if you're struggling a little bit, how about these passages? That's it. It's not a doctrine. You're not supposed to frame that on your wall. You're not supposed to tattoo it on the inside of your hand as an, and say, this is what it means to be an evangelist. It's not that. It's just a helper. You understand? You don't make a doctrine out of it. Mark 1, 14 to 20, repent and follow me. John 3, 1 to 18, you must be born again. Luke 9, 57 to 62, 14, 25 to 35, what it means to follow Jesus, count the cost. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, from sinners to saints by grace through faith. And then Romans 3, 9 to 26, 4, 1 to 8, 5, 1 to 11. Being under sin, we can only be justified by faith in Christ. Those are fantastic passages to have, you know, in your shirt pocket as an evangelist. Fantastic, you know, places where you can put marks in your Bibles. If you're out with your Bible and you intend on, you know, speaking to someone about the truth. Fantastic. Only ones? I hope not. Not a bad place to start. Is it doctrine? No. No. In your life, you might use two of those and have two other ones somewhere else that resonate with your audience. Um, who knows? But don't be pigeonholed. Even after being given what's on the board, you might say, gee, you know, I'm still a little nervous about this evangelism thing. And I love that the Spirit brought up the go-to um, relief button. Pray. You're a little nervous, are you? Pray. I mean, Ann and I, Ann came back to my office. She's back there harassing me when I'm trying to get ready. I'm like, Ann, how many times are we going to go through this? You know what I'm saying? Right? And I told her straight to her face. I said, you know what? Sometimes I feel like a, a jackass too. I'll have a perfect opportunity to give the gospel, and I'm a coward. Oh, man, does that hurt to say. But it's true. It's true. I'm too much of a coward to give the gospel. God knows why. It's, it's vestiges of my self-life. Oh, well, you know what? You know, oh, now I'm going like, to lose this friend. or I'm, Whatever the problem is, right? It's pathetic anyways. Anyway, I can color it anyway. Oh, well, you know, no, dude, you're a coward. In this moment, I'm not a coward. Don't get carried away now. In that moment, I'm a coward. I don't mind admitting it. Because that's the truth. Isn't that what humility is? We've got to at least start with the truth. Yeah, in that moment, I'm a coward, and it sickens me. And it's gross. It's like, dude, after all these years, you stand behind a pulpit. I know. Just saying, just being honest. So what do I do? I pray. Lord, give me the strength. Help me out here. Because apparently... Apparently, I'm a coward when it comes to evangelism. Sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. Up here on the board, making disciples, spend some time in prayer then. If you struggle, like the rest of us, spend some time in prayer. Ask God to affect your heart with the urgency of the mission he has given you and the other believers in your life. 
Ask Him for the strength, wisdom, and perseverance to pursue His mission by the power of His Spirit in you. He is able and will bring it to pass, even in you, in His timing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, in His timing. That's why I never tell a brand new believer, get your Bible, get your, <laughs> get your, and go, and just go start, you know, boom. Not saying they can't evangelize, I'm just saying, settle down, learn, in God's timing, He will urge you out. Right? Don't be lazy and don't go, you know, you're like 80 years old, you've been in the Word for like 50, 60 years, you're like, He just never sent me out. You don't get that? Don't be that guy either, or gal. Don't be that person. Don't be making excuses, you know. All right, that concludes our review of making disciples. Obviously, a huge balance statement. Uh, job well done, but you guys needed a balance statement. It's as simple as that. So you don't get lopsided um, and make that huge mistake, possibly, of creating doctrines out of narratives. All right? So we got a nice general statement there as well as a learning tool. Prior to that, we had a Thanksgiving special worth mentioning a little bit here as well. These things all dovetail into our primary course of study, uh, as is always the case. Um, if you've been paying attention, you'll notice also that the Spirit's inspired two recent blogs, in addition to the Thanksgiving special, on the topic of gratitude up here on the board. The latest one this past week's was Ingratitude is Toxic. Ingratitude is toxic, meaning it's very harmful, it's poisonous to you. And then on uh, November 13th, we had Concentric Circles, which was that idea that gratitude begins at the core and emanates out. So the Spirit's had a lot to say on gratitude as of late. As always, the Spirit's got a plan, a curriculum, that is perfectly well-placed. Now, here's the highlight reel from what the Spirit's been conveying to us lately on the topic of gratitude. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Hope you never get sick of this passage. But we dug our heels into a Greek word, eucharisteo, here. A couple of Sundays back, the Thanksgiving special. We dug our heels into that. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 reads, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Up here on the board, we focused, or the Spirit focused our attention on Eucharisteo in the Greek, which translates give thanks. And it's present tense, active voice, imperative mood, and it's a command. So you're commanded to give thanks. And what that command is, it's a, it's a habit that you do personally. It means to give thanks, and in context means to be thankful for God's good grace. So we just took pause, if you recall, uh, on the Thanksgiving special. And we said, wait a minute. When we look at the original language, it, it, it's a command? The Greek states clearly that to give thanks is a command that seems like something that something else not commanded of me but something 
you know, that I command of myself even in that sense, where maybe if I, maybe I do, maybe I don't. You understand what I'm saying? But not necessarily a command from God. Yes, it's a command from God. So giving thanks is commanded. Believers are commanded then to do this thing. Should that be surprising though? Go to 1 John 5.1. Should that be surprising that believers are commanded to give thanks? And if you start, I hope you're really understanding what the Spirit's been doing on this topic of His giving commandments. That you're, you're moving away from that adolescent viewpoint that commandments are somehow oppressive to an appreciative one where you're saying, thank you, Lord, for commanding me. Because to me, that's my, that's my direct, that's my compass, right? The commandments end up being a grace gift because it's, it's showing me, telling me, instructing me on how to think, behave, act, speak. It's directing me as a member of your family, Lord. So you, you take on a much different perspective on, when you see the word command, is a sense of yes, like yes, thank you. 1 John 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, whoever uh, loves whoever has been born of him, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Huh. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and guess what? His commandments are not burdensome. They're not. They're beautiful. They're grace gifts to us. We ought to embrace them, look for them even. I like when I see that because it sort of gives maybe an area that somewhere in my life has a gray edge to it, like a soft edge, and it goes whoosh. And it says, nope, very clear. This is a command. Give thanks. Nice and clear all of a sudden. Love it. Because it makes my life simpler. Makes your life simpler. Arrogance, oh, you know, start lawyering, right? Oh, well, you know, let's soften these edges a little bit. My flesh don't like it. It's a little too sharp. It's cutting into my flesh. Right. Your flesh doesn't like it, but your new creature's like, yes. I want clarity. I want truth. Up here on the board, from the blog itself, ingratitude uh, in is toxic. In human terms, we might think giving another person gratitude is a gift to the receiver. Like, oh, I'm going to give you something you should you know, gain from this. I'm going to give you my gratitude. And it's a gift to you. That's human thinking. In God's economy, being grateful is actually a grace gift for the giver. You benefit. It's kind of like forgiveness, right? You benefit. Forgiveness isn't a, isn't a grace gift to the other person, strictly speaking, in the context of this. Just like giving gratitude. The blessing is for the giver in God's economy. That's who benefits the most. The other thing, they might even reject what you're trying to give them. They might reject what you're giving. They might reject your gratitude even. I don't want it. I hate you. Okay. Well, you have it. And because you have my gratitude, because I'm grateful for you, I'm blessed. Doesn't even matter how you receive it. Because I forgive you, I'm blessed. Doesn't matter if you receive my forgiveness. I'm blessed. That's the beauty of grace. 
That's the beauty of God's economy. We're blessed when we give. Who's that sound like? Right? Up here on the board. Acts 20, 35, part B. So all that makes sense if you understand Jesus' words up here on the board. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what can we conclude up here on the board? To give thanks is to be blessed. So when, you're comm- when he commands you, give thanks, what is he saying? He said, I want to bless you. I want to bless your socks off. You say, how? Give thanks. Hmm? Your flesh is like, hmm? Right? My, your flesh is like, I'm never satisfied, so I'm never giving thanks. I'm implacable. Right? And as long as you abide in that thinking, guess what? You're not blessed. You're cursed by your own flesh. Ingratitude is toxic. When you let your flesh have its way, you're toxic. You know what it's like to be around toxicity, right? You know, toxic people, maybe it's you. Sometimes you get up in the, mo- in the morning, you look in the mirror, like, oh, that's a toxic person that's looking at me, right? But it's not always you. Sometimes, you, you know, you're like, la, 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 I'm blessed, I'm gratitude. And you run into someone, and they're toxic. And you're just like, ooh, right? It's like, you're just toxic right now. Chances are they're ungrateful. They're living in ingratitude. They're not grateful. I'm speaking about believers, by the way. They're ungrateful for all that God has done for them. So maybe that's your opportunity to remind them. Hey, what about this? Uh, That's pretty great, right? How about the fact that you're saved? That's pretty great, huh? Hopefully that's enough. That's right. I'm a brat. Yep, you're being a brat, like right now. And sometimes you look in the mirror, you're being a brat. Yep. To give thanks is to be blessed. Giving thanks also glorifies God, which is why in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, it says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See how perfect his economy is? It all makes total sense. If you don't try to lawyer your way out of it, go to Hebrews 13, 15. It's when you start lawyering like Satan that the misery seeps in. Right? That was part of this week's blog as well. Stop lawyering. Okay? Stop trying to find loopholes. Stop reading narratives so you can create doctrines. Huh? Everybody with me? Stop reading narratives and make doctrines out of it to justify your ungodliness. Huh? Right? You don't think people do that? Of course they do it. Well, they did it. Totally different circumstances. Totally out of context. No, 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 no. Don't, don't read the five verses before or after. Just read this one. You know, you show up and you got like a piece of paper, two pieces of paper, and you got one here and like one here. You're like, hey, read that right there. Right? No, 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 don't read about, don't get context, because if you get context, my, my lawyering's out of, shot out of the, you know, out of the barrel, just read this one so I can justify my ridiculous ungodliness. Anyways, Hebrews 13, 15. How do I know all this, by the way? Because I do it! (laughs) Right? Not many wise, not many noble. Who do you think he puts behind pulpits? We're like master lawyers. 
guys are like, dang. First the coward thing, now this. I'm starting to see you, mister. I'm starting to see right through you. See right through, you'll see Christ. I can tell you that. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, thanksgiving and doing good, God is pleased. Right? Reminds you of uh, Romans 12, right? Sacrifice your whole bodies, your whole essence, everything that you are for him. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. When God is pleased, guess what? We are blessed. Up here on the board, this is an old uh, principle. To God's glory, whenever God's grace is on full display, he is glorified, which pleases him. First order of grace, he says, here's a command, follow this. And you say, okay, I'll do it. And you do it, and you're blessed out. And God goes, my work here is done. I'm glorified. Right? I gave you the command. I gave you the power to follow it. You followed it. I'm glorified. All by my grace. Boom. Let's read a reference passage that was in our recent blog. Go to Psalm 50, verse 14. Psalm 50, verse 14. This should uh, look familiar to those of you who did actually read the blog. Psalm 50, verse 14. <clears throat> what does it say? It should sound familiar. We just read something just like this in Hebrews. I, I uh, alluded to something just like this in Romans 12. Psalm 50, verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. All of that glorifies him because by grace you are delivered. A little further down, verse 23. Verse 23 reads, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. That's actually clearly stated doctrine right there, right? The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Again, following the command to, quote, give thanks, becomes a source of blessing for us, in part because it brings glory to God, which pleases him. Again, the point on the board to God's glory, whenever God's grace is on full display, he is glorified, which pleases him. Which pleases him. Go to Philippians 1.9. Philippians 1.9. We'll see some more scripture on this. Philippians 1.9. So we remain in God's grace economy, and he is glorified. What is the great litmus test? Well, we're going to see it here in a second. The great litmus test of all, and this came out this past week as well, is love. That's the great litmus test. Philippians 1.9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And stop right there. Just like I taught with uh, gratitude and, thanks and uh, forgiveness, guess what? When you love others more and more, 
It's not about them receiving the love. It's about the love in you. That is more and more. And guess what happens? You are blessed. You have more love in you. You're more blessed. Human thinking says, oh, you have more love to give somebody else and everybody else is blessed by your love. Blah, blah, blah. No. The more love you have in you, regardless of how it's received, you're blessed. That's tantamount to saying the more you abide in God's economy. Same thing. Philippians 1.9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled, you see, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Oh, yes. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Whew, that's a pregnant verse right there, boy. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness hmm. that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, to summarize the Spirit's teaching as of late on this topic of thanksgiving, first, we know that giving thanks is commanded. We know that commands aren't burdensome. We know that obeying commands glorifies God. We know that glorifying God pleases Him. We know that pleasing Him means blessings for us. It's beautiful. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus said very succinctly, just to cut to the chase, it's more blessed to give than to receive. It makes total sense that He would say that. He didn't go through that whole you know, logical, theological dissertation I just went through, that boom, 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 boom. He just said, trust me, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And guess what? He was right. Duh. We just need a little help because we're slow. And we're like lawyers, right? And so God gives us, all right, so you want to soften? Yeah, yeah, okay, chop, 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 chop. Oh, there goes excuse number one. There goes excuse number two. Chop. Here goes excuse number three. Chop. Here goes disclaimer number four. Chop. Right? Like lawyers. Here goes small, you know, micro print five. Chop. Here goes asterisk six. Chop. That's what he does for us because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to be riddled with misery as a result of lawyering and try to make the word of God say something it's not meant to say. Jesus meant it when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. The more you understand of Holy Scripture, the more you realize what he's saying. So when you understand the summary the Spirit just laid out for us here, then Jesus' words make all the more sense. This is why giving thanks, by the way, is everywhere in the Bible. Look it up. If you've got some kind of like word study or something, like a tool, or, you know, look up thanksgiving or gratitude as a topic. It's... Why? Well, we just saw it. Let's read that beautiful passage we ended Thanksgiving special with. Go to Psalm 100, verse 1. Short psalm. It's a psalm for giving thanks. Psalm 100, verse 1. And then we're just going to, we're going to get back a little bit to our primary course of study, and then we have communion service, of course. 
Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen? Oh, it's just magnificent. So we've got a little time left to graft ourselves back into our primary course of study where we've been focusing on family. Proverbs 17. We took off when we were talking about family. I believe it's verse 6. Family. So here's the recurring principle in our studies up here on the board. On divine institutions, uh, God is the one who created the institutions of marriage and family. He also chose to make us in his own image. So it makes sense that since family is a big deal to God, then it's a big deal to us as well. And he makes it a big deal to us. All right, let's head on back to our primary course of study. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 6. Proverbs 17, verse 6. I'm just trying to get back to where we were. This is, the series is titled Proverbs 17, Wisdom, after all. Proverbs 17, verse 6. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. So here's one truth we've already gleaned from Holy Scripture up here on the board. God loves godly families. Okay? We've already gleaned that from Holy Scripture. The Spirit then asked ourselves, is my family godly? He asked us to ask ourselves, last time I was teaching on this, is my family godly? That's a fair question. If God loves godly families, you're a believer, you're listening to this message, then you have to ask yourself, well, is my family godly then? If God loves godly families, I want to know, is my family godly? Well, the greatest litmus test we can lend to this critical question involves what I alluded to five minutes ago up here on the board, love. Love. That's the great litmus test in your family. No matter the size, shape, if it's just the two of you, if it's the two of you, or you're like the Fredericks where there's like 60,000 of you, I'm just kidding, I'm picking on them, they're not even here, hi guys. Right? You know what I'm saying, right? It doesn't matter the size of the brood. It's just, is there love there? Godly love. Not that romantic garbage that, you know, Fabio tries to sell you. You know, I'm talking about true, godly love. And what do we just learn about love? It starts here. It starts with you. If you're, if you're in one of those toxic relationships, the selfish ones that I wrote about, kind of, where... Your love is wholly dependent on what you can get from the other person and then vice versa. That's a train wreck. Because we're all sinners and every time that person sins, you're going to suck wind and you're going to be angry and, and unforgiving and all that stuff. Not to mention what the Spirit just said, that when you have love, regardless of how it's received, you're blessed. In other words, in a marriage, you could have two people that I don't even know, you know, let's just say for the extreme polar ends, they don't even get along. Let's say they've been together for so long, they're just like kind of sick of each other. Do you know what I'm saying? Like Pat's sick of John. I'm just kidding. Come on, guys. Right? I love you guys. But John's like, 
that's not going to happen. Anyways, I'm just saying. That's not true. Say there's two people, and they don't even like each other anymore because they're just, I don't know, whatever, right? They can each be blessed in that marriage because this one has love, Christ-like love, something that is in them for the other person. Whether it's received or not isn't the issue. They have love. They're blessed. Same thing over here. They have love, so they're blessed. So now the family, the institution of uh, the family itself, the institution of marriage and family, the whole thing is now in the economy, in God's economy. And love pervades it. And so blessings abound. Not even about personalities. So that's the true test when it comes to families. Is there godly love keeping it together? Is there godly love in each one of the individuals that's keeping what God intended to glorify Him, glorifying Him. Is that happening? Are the angels rubbernecking and saying, yeah, I can see it. I can see the love in that family. So that's the litmus test. If you recall, we did a whole survey in Holy Scripture, most of it anyways. We're going to get through it real quick. On the topic of love, for the sake of returning back to the concept of family, Here's the scripture we covered so far, up here on the board. I'm going to go quickly. 1 Peter 1.22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Next, 1 Corinthians 16.14, Let all that you do be done in love. 2 Corinthians 2.4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Ephesians 5.33 However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, for, and for a helmet, the, the hope of salvation. And the last one we've seen, so far, 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And so that's as far as we got with love. So let's take a few more moments uh, to finish up our survey. Okay? Because this is a nice topic to end on. Love is the source of encouragement. Go to Hebrews 10.24. Hebrews 10.24. I don't know about you, but maybe one, of the, maybe one of the most effective methods that the Spirit uses in my life is when I'm a jackass. Are you ready? When I'm a jackass, say I'm being a jackass to Tammy, not that that ever happens. Whoa, whoa, that pane of glass almost fell on Monica's head, right? Say I know I'm being a jackass, because you know when you're being it, right? right? And then she just loves me. Doesn't, doesn't drop the hockey gloves, doesn't fall for the trick, doesn't get, you know, doesn't, you know, I can actually see someone who's functioning, filled with the Spirit, and has love. What's the first fruit of the Spirit named? Galatians 5.22? Love, right? Who's filled? It's a complete indictment. It's like, oh. There's no, you don't get that. The, 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 the tirade ends. There's no defense against that thing. 
There's no defense against godly love. You just melt. You just say, ha, you know, they might pout over there or something. But eventually you know when you're hit with that kind of a response, it's encouraging. Because now you learn, you say, wait a minute, I can do that too? She ain't no prize. <laughs> oh, oh, just a little laugh, huh, DJ? Huh? Remember this, right? Relations, any relationship, right? You, you're encouraged by, the, by love being present in the other person. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love in good works. Yeah. How about you be that person for the other person that's being a jerk, a jerk to you today? How about you show them the love of Christ? Isn't that what he did? They, they ripped out his beard and punched him in the face, and then he went to the cross. He said, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. How about you do that? What, where's there a defense to that? There isn't one. Why do you think the Bible says heat burning coals on their head? Be kind to them. There's no defense. There's nothing to fight about. Benny agrees, apparently. He's like, woo! <laughs> Joey's like, he's not agreeing, Dad. <laughs> How about love ought to persist among believers? Go to Hebrews 13.1. Hebrews 13.1. Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Let it persist. Love must be genuine, not hypocritical. Go to 1 John 3, 18. 1 John 3, 18. Love must be genuine. Not hypocritical. 1 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in, the, in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When that critical point happens, when you have that opportunity, maybe like I just described, do it. Don't just talk a big game. Don't just say, oh, I have the love of Christ. Well, let's see it then. Do it. How about 1 John 4.7, where love is the hallmark of the saved person? 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who has this as a habit, as, a, as the portion of their life, in other words, you love. That's who you are. Doesn't mean you don't fail, but that's who you are. It's, it's the atomic part of you, if you want to think of it that way. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Again, that's just a quick survey of love in the Bible. Back to our primary passage, and then I'll get on to communion service. Proverbs 17, 6. Go there quickly. Proverbs 17, verse 6. Love it, love it, love it. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. What's the tie that binds us all? Up here in the board? Boom. There you go. Love. You want the divine institutions to function in your life. You want your marriage to work. You want your families to work. Love. Biblical love. Love in you. Don't be looking to love somebody else for who they are. You love for who you are. That's love. That's Christ's love. Right? And when someone wrongs you, 
Think of the words of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're in their flesh right now. They're out of control. I can see it in their eyes. They're like a feral cat. Right? Right? That's when you have your opportunity to do the deed. Don't just talk a big game. To do the deed. Stand your ground in Christ Jesus and love. Show them love. It's the quickest thing to dismantle the whole situation before it, you know, because fighting is incendiary, right? It's, it's like throwing gas on a fire. You, it's like the water of the word douses it. Whoop. Like we've noted in the past, it's not that marriage and families are exclusive rights for believers. However, with our God-given ability to see the Lord, we are granted the blessing of seeing him in those we love and the most here, or love the most here on earth. And as a result, as Jesus himself clearly stated, others will take notice. Let's close with John 13, 34, and then we'll get ready for communion service. Go to John 13, 34. John 13, 34. We covered a lot of ground here this morning, but that's typically the case whenever you have a couple of special, specials outside of a, a course of study. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. What? Wait a minute. Oh, man, this is a commandment too? Yep. And what, what do commandments do for us? We're blessed. You understand? Love, and you're blessed. Love the way I just described, the way the Bible describes it. Love for who you are, and you are blessed. You're untouchable. It no longer matters about that other person. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this, all people, believers and unbelievers to some degree, will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And God is glorified. Amen? All right, let's get some music and get the... uh, Communion service slide up there, please.
Thank you. Appreciate that, as always. I'll keep it brief. I think enough has been said. Um, now's the time to celebrate the one who embodies love. He is our great example, and he embodies grace and truth as well. 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So in remembrance of our Lord's person, let's eat the bread. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his work. Let's drink the cup. For as long as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for special moments in time like this because that's what they are. Ordained by you from eternity past, Father, for the sake of setting us free to your glory. We know that your grace is behind every blessing, Father. For this knowledge, even by itself, we are so ever grateful. We're most grateful always for your sending your Son to the undeserving, that by his merits alone we might spend eternity with you. Thank you for making that possible for us. Father, we just ask for your continued blessings as we take all that we've learned this morning back to the privacy of our souls, to the institutions that you designed to bring glory to you, our families. And then your will be done as part of the command, the Great Commission, Father, we might take these things also out to a world that's just so desperate for truth. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.